Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. Chris Turner is a winner of the National Business Award and finalist for the Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction. He has long been one of Canada's leading voices on climate solutions and the global energy transition. His most recent book, published by Random House Canada, is called How to Be a Climate Optimist. Welcome to Northern Latitudes, Chris. Well, thanks for having me. Like me, you weren't always a climate optimist. What brought you around to the optimistic side? What was one of the first things? Well, I think, so there's there's probably two things happening, one of which I didn't realize at the time, and the other was sort of a deliberate choice. And the deliberate choice in the, in my sort of own mental evolution happened first. I had, you know, coming out of university, starting work as a, as a uh, magazine writer, I was very keen to write on environmental, particularly about climate change. And I can remember, this is the late 90s, so, you know, sort of early aughts of disaster stories, a lot of apocalypse stories. And at one point I actually had, I was going to buy one of those around the world tickets that you could do fairly reasonably as long as you kept moving in the same direction and just hop from one future disaster area to another. And, and uh, <laughs> we had it all in place and then the magazine's budget, they couldn't do it. And then when I kind of revisited this, I, I wrote a book on the Simpsons, then revisited the topic and it was right around the time, you know, my, uh, uh, my wife was pregnant with her first child and we were talking about, you know, potentially traveling a bit together for research. And I thought, what a, kind of a terrible gift to this, you know, child to have have its first memories be of disaster, of places, you know, <laughs> Pacific Islands that are going to vanish into the sea. And, 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 and that's where, you know, places that are, you know, disrupted catastrophically by climate change. And so I just sort of stood it on its head and... You began to ask the question, well, what would a world that works look like? What if I went to places where they're actually doing something? I knew that, you know, this was 2005, 2006. There was not strong universal response yet, but I knew that somebody had to be doing so. I didn't, I hadn't really looked at it that closely. And that was sort of the, although if I go further back, I did actually, you know, in uh, 2000, 2001, I went to an electric vehicle symposium, uh, which was the, at the time was the big sort of, sort of electric car show. And at the time, there was a lot of hype around hydrogen as the future of motor vehicle fuel. And they had a prototype car that um, that basically, you know, it's hydrogen fueled, which means that basically it's, it's, it's exhaust is steam, like a clothes dryer basically coming off the back of a car. And that being a pretty profound thing, just thinking, well, if we've got, if we're at the point now where we could just be driving cars around that pretty much waste, why are we, why are we doing things in this? And spent more than 20 years trying to answer that question. One, why more of this? And then, where the optimism comes in is from having been, you know, now kind of on this beat and really seeing things get dramatically better, uh, particularly in the last five years, where a lot of, you know, what I would have seen back in 2005, 2006, 2007, when I started reporting on this stuff, what would have seemed like some of them like really long shot kind of kind of uh, hopes for the future of energy, the you know the future of industry, all that kind of stuff, now becoming legitimately and unequivocally mainstream and clearly now the direction we're, we're moving in. We're, you know, whether we're moving quite fast enough whether you know we've we've done quite have on this the momentum and the inevitability and that's where the optimism comes from yeah and you hold up going back to the car show you hold up the automotive industry as one of the examples where we really are making much more progress than people maybe think we are right 
Yeah, and and I think that's because the time horizons on climate change are so strange. Uh, you know, everyone comes to it their own way. If you're, you know, particularly if you're a good deal younger than me, it's kind of hovered over a lot of your. Ch- you only really noticed the scale of it, you know, a couple of years ago or whatever, and it might seem you're barely changing at all. And you don't have the perspective to kind of, you know, twenty years ago, everyone thought electric cars were still probably science fiction. That, that was not something we, you know, maybe high, maybe still one day, but electric cars, that's not going to happen. And even 10 years ago, you know, oh, sure, there's, you know, this this one company that's that's churning these things up. But, you know, that's, you know, those are luxury cars. That's not that's not serious technology. Um, that's not something everybody's going to use anytime soon. You only have to go back. I'm trying to remember whether it's 2020 or 20, I think it was 2020 that the, the CEO of Toyota was still saying they saw no particular reason to move the company in the direction of full electric vehicles because that wasn't where the automotive industry was. That's three years ago. Uh, Toyota has dramatically, they, the, the, their, their shareholders forced them to dramatically change their take on all electric vehicles, and Toyota is now committed fully to building all electric future. But that all happened extremely quickly, and it happened really without, you know, a lot of industry really getting, you know, getting religion. It's just where the market's going at a pace that's undeniable. Um, and so that's why, and, you know, you can, people do argue, you know, that they could be going faster if they wanted to, or, you know, they're making these long-term commitments so that they can keep selling big polluting vehicles now. But in the long view, you know, in 10 years, 15 years, people are not going to be buying internal combustion engine cars anymore. They just won't be. Even people who right now are probably, you know, uh, uh, ranting and raving about, you know, whoever it is, Trudeau or Greta Thunberg, whoever it is they think is making them give up their, uh, the, 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 those people will, are, those people are losing, have lost no yet. Their truck or their propane stove, one or the other. Um, yeah, yeah, the gas stove <laughs> thing is that's a whole, I mean, it's amazing to watch, it's, like it's 20 years now, and you just watch the same thing play out over and over and over again, like just this, it's the same curve of like outrageous reaction, and how could we possibly live without, and then obsolescence, and no one's even talking about it anymore. When I read the automotive section in your book, the the chapter dealing with the automotive, the couple of chapters, so I really started looking again to see, you know, what's out there, what's available to the average consumer. And a couple of things happened. One, you, you men- already mentioned Toyota and Toyota's right. struggling right now because they have been late to adapt to this. And the yeah. other one was the announcement by Tesla is they were going to lower prices because they were having trouble making sales. Mm-hmm. But then it, the thing there that I thought was interesting was that Ford right away announced a price cut as well to match Tesla with mm-hmm. their unit. And almost Kia's entire line now is available in either hybrid or electric. So that transition is really gaining speed. Are there other yeah. transitions that we see or other areas that we see that are gaining that kind of momentum as well? Well, I mean, the one that I talk about probably most extensively in the book is renewables, which again, I mean, real deliberate reporting I did on this thing that I call Beat Now, the first global energy transition reporting I ever did, was looking at Danish wind turbines off the uh, coast of the mainland in, in Denmark that was Renewable Energy Island. It was going to be 100%. Uh, renewably powered and and succeeded beyond its own wildest dreams. Actually, in the case that was that was where the story started. And at the time, it was mainly a story more about wind than solar. Solar was kind of glamorous, but not very powerful in 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 those decade or so. What happened in the solar industry in the last ten years is extraordinary. No one saw it coming. I could fill a book with faulty predictions for the future of solar with underestimate uh, underestimates of its potential capacity in the future. 
basically the, the the combination of it and storage both kind of uh, seeing their their uh, co you know, costs you know just three five ten years has made the idea of standalone solar farms certain amount of their energy this now is happening the island of Kauai which is the one I mentioned in the book there you know is sometimes powered twenty four hours a day during the sort of peak solar periods by nothing but solar power which was something that you know was dismissed as fantasy when I started on this beat was still seen as kind of this, you know, you know, do-gooder fantasy happen in a couple, you know, there might be somebody willing to overpay for power to the point where that would should No one saw it as mainstream technology today, which it, which it increasingly is. We're saying, I mean, Alberta is a great example of a, you know, where I live where, you know, the, there's not a lot of government support. There hasn't been a huge amount of government enthusiasm. It is now Canada's leading jurisdiction for new renewable energy installations. And increasingly, as you know, new solar plants are being developed, there is storage accompanying them. None of this happening because anyone in government said we need to do this. It's just happened. Yeah, and there's a couple of things there. One is yeah. I, I make a I make an annual trip out west to the Rockies, and every year I drive through Alberta, and every time I go through Alberta, I see more and more wind farms, and I I kind of chuckle because of all the you know, the media coverage that the anti-renewable people get. Mm -hmm. And then and then you drive through Alberta and you see wind farm after wind farm after wind farm. You coin a phrase in your book and you call it, you talk about the new value proposition. Mm -hmm. Explain that to me. Yeah, where that came from was thinking about why it was we developed, you know, climate advocacy circles, it's, it's common for people to say, look at how wasteful we are. You know, look at these huge houses, these overwide streets, these giant vehicles that we drive around in from place to place, these massive parking lots surrounding big buffers. How did we come to that? Did, was there some sort of moment of, you know, collective insanity that we all decided, hey, let's be willfully wasteful of energy and, and just really, you know, create as much, uh, uh, you know, burn as much fossil fuel as we possibly can as fast as we can to, 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 you know, to, to fuel our lifestyle. And of course, that wasn't the case. There was, you know, a value proposition. And the one that, I mean, it, it didn't quite evolve all at once, but, you know, that sort of post-war suburban ideal is the one that I love as an example of that. So if you were in North America, in large parts of the industrial West, even in some parts of the developing world, the second half of the 20th century, and you were imagining what, you know, what working hard and getting ahead and finding a good life was, you were kind of shooting for something that looked kind of like, you know, as I trace it in the book, uh, the California suburban ideal after World War II. A single family detached house, uh, you know, garage and a driveway and a big backyard and wide streets to take you to and the fast food restaurant and the beach, which was a big part of the, the appeal of that, that whole California uh, version of it. And all the rest of it, you know, like, as I described in the book, I you know, went to high school in Northern Ontario in a community that was built to the standards of a California post-war suburb, even though that we were not near any beaches and quite like it. And I was standing outside freezing my butt off waiting for a bus because it's hard to service the, those communities with transit. So it wasn't a collective insanity. It was this this desire value proposition that was quite you know, extremely attractive, still is, is very attractive. I mean, it's still how the majority of Canadians live is in some version of roughly that, you know, resil, you know, suburban layout. And so what I talk about in the book is that the sort of suite of tools that is coming together to tackle the climate crisis is starting to form that, that attractive a value proposition. The idea of, you know, slightly more dense communities where there's a mix of uses for daily needs without necessarily getting in a car. The idea of, you know, a house that can potentially uh, generate some of its own energy rather than just being an energy consumer, a vehicle that, that, you know, 
uh, has you know produces no emissions, potentially serves as a mobile battery that you can you can broker power back to the grid if you do own a vehicle with a large enough battery. To, I've seen people now even model that out with with e-bikes as as you know there's anything with a battery could potentially be providing a service when it's on use back to the grid. All of the you know, much better efficiency. This is a thing that you know, I remember in my early days of reporting on this. People would talk about how if all you did was take the meter on most people's you know standard suburban house and put it inside and give it a really really clear user interface to, to show how much power you were using in, in you know sort of tests that were run by various you know utility companies and things like that inevitably wound up using much less power if they could actually see themselves using it because what would you know in, in those days what would happen is people would think you know I'm not using any big appliances right now I'm not d- doing anything it's you know the lights are off the the heat is off and I can still see this you know, meter worrying what the hell's going on. And it's all this stuff that we have on backup power and phantom power and all that kind of stuff. And now we have these, you know, computers in our pockets that could, you know, be saving us and, and are beginning to do so, uh, save us lots of, of, of money and, and make us much more efficient. And so you put all that together. And the argument I make in the book is that's not an argument for fighting climate change. That's an argument for just a better way to live, you know, sort of low energy, low carbon uh, value proposition is much more attractive now than the suburban one. The suburban one still holds sway, but I would argue you look at what's happening with, you know, the you know sort of millennials and, and younger as they voices, and they are not hunting as hard for a garage as they are for a walkable neighborhood and amenities close by and not being, you know, intentionally or otherwise damaging to the planet in the work they do and the lives they live. I mean, so I think there's a pivot there that's going to take a generation or two that is, that is profound. And I think it's, and the, the place it gets to is not unrecognizable. It's not, we're not, you know, idealized boomer era, intentional community that we're all going to, you know, live in, in, in communal environments and share everything. And we're, we're just retrofitting the, the world we already live in for a much lower carbon, much more efficient lifestyle, and, and that none of their sacrifice. Uh, and I think the core of the value proposition argument I make in the book is that when you go to the places, when you're, whether it's Denmark or part of North America where they've been very committed to this or whatever it is, you don't see people missing what they lost. You see people very excited about what they've gained. And I think that piece, for a whole bunch of reasons that I get into to some degree in the book, gets lost in this conversation because about blame and disaster and survival and saving the world and protecting people from their own worst instincts or whatever. And, and the conversation winds up entirely about, you know, what you need to give up in order to, to help, you know, a future that, that, that that's going to be better and not what you have to gain. I think that's starting to shift now, but that was, that was a long time in coming. And you talk about it in your book, and it's one of those, most of us that are environmentally conscious come across it all the time because there's some pretty big people that, that push it is the war metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's like, and, and you explain quite well, and I was, I was very impressed by this argument of why that won't work. Tell mm-hmm. me why the war metaphor doesn't work. Uh, well, there are a handful of reasons. I mean, in straight practical terms, it misrepresents what happened during the Second World War. For those listening who aren't familiar, basically, you know, the, the in in climate circles, the idea is if we could just get to a war footing, if we could if we could basically behave as the Allied economies did during the Second World War for whatever period, five ten years, completely reconfigure all of our economies to low carbon. Uh, do so with extraordinary speed and efficiency and local friction. That, that, that seems to be the, the, the way this is laid out. Then we'd solve climate change and everyone would be happy. The first part of that is that 
there was the, the it's only in retrospect that there was zero friction in wartime economy. Like there was there were protests, there were riots, there was enormous political back and forth going on constantly th- through the through the war years. Uh, in every in every country in, in involved in the war, I mean, other than the ones that were under siege, there's a certain amount of solidarity. You know, we see that in in Ukraine now. Okay. You had that in Britain during the, the the Blitz, of course. Back here in Canada, the United States, we were still arguing like cats and dogs over you know who who would get, who would profit and 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 how and and the rest of it. But the other thing I think is is it misunderstands how political change happens. So I mean, yeah, if you have the extraneous force of an actual fighting war. It similarly with uh, the pandemic, where, particularly in, in its first phases, where there was this extraneous force that, that was undeniable, all encompassing, that affected everything all at once. Then you can sometimes, for a get people to to agree to set aside uh, most of their their misgivings about the government of the day or whatever, whatever you have to do to solve this. But I mean, we learned in the pandemic it doesn't last very long, and if there's any ambiguity around it, it begins to fall apart very quickly. The goal in the, in the, in the, in the extreme, extremely ambiguous in a lot of ways. Uh, the results are like you would suddenly get to a point where, you know, Hitler capitulates and shoots himself in his bunker in five years. You, when exactly of this this climate war footing, for, first of all, and then where is? I mean, even in an ideal, you know, everything goes right kind of kind of gaming of the system. Where is the lever that you pull to get that level of political consensus? Our first 30 years of, of climate debate has been demonstrating that that's extraordinarily hard to do at anything above national level. It's pretty hard to do even at national level, but it's nearly impossible at, at, at a, you know, even at the level of NAFTA and the countries that are in NORAD or NATO or take, you know, the WTO, take any one of these somewhat consensus agreements we have on certain things we do as, as national economies. And, and then imagine yanking on that and saying, okay, you know, we've just nationalized the fossil fuel industries and we're eliminating them tomorrow. No more internal combustion engines. Uh, you know, we're forcing density into every neighborhood in your city. And, and you're going to get no blowback from that. People are just going to say, well, it's a war footing. I mean, it's just, it's not a, it's an effective metaphor. And then feeds into the idea that we need to suffer for a while to solve this. Places that are, you know, we want, Pick Denmark because it's one that I know well. Denmark adds close to solving the climate crisis as any country on Earth. There's a handful of others you could point to as well. But as a country that you know has you know is largely eliminating fossil fuels from its electricity grid, massively increased its efficiency. Uh, is you know decarbonizing trees is increasingly going to start decarbonizing its transportation beyond what it already has. All, all everything kind of pushing in the same way, and they've been pushing in the same way for. A solid decade or so now. There's very little. I mean, you know, the Danish political parties absolutely fight about all the stuff that any political parties fight about, but they don't fight about. They only really fight fight about the scale and speed of climate action. They don't fight about doing it anymore. And you do not see country that sacrificed and went without, you know, with victory gar- and you know, and gathering up tin cans to give to the war effort. That's not how it went. It was actually people that lived better. And I think that's why I, I, for all of those and many other reasons, uh, more than anything, though, I think it's, I mean, the war, the war effort metaphor is a, is, is a kind of wish fulfillment. I would like to have this degree of power. I would like to pretend politics isn't the absolute most important piece of this whole thing, because we know we have the technology and we know we can make it work. And we know, so all we need is political will. And that's easy, right? No, that's, that's the whole ballgame. The whole 20 years to date about building political will.
So it's not, and you mentioned this already, it's not going to be politically led. Mm. Is it going to be market forces or is it going to be a combination of things? It's the combination. I mean, I think it's in, in a way it's kind of, it makes sense that the some of the countries that were furthest ahead in this game are these, you know, fairly um, widely admired social democracies that have a pretty good balance of still pretty high level institutions, fairly high level of consent, what, you know, what we're all doing together. I'm thinking of Scandinavian countries, Germany, to some extent, you know, Northern Europe generally, where they've, they've in, a, in a lot of ways kind of, kind of, are closer to that kind of a consensus than, than we are maybe here. Those countries are all, market forces were enormous and discounted by any, you, know, you hear, or I certainly hear now, these this kind of retrofitting of what happened in Germany with solar power, for example, to turn that into some sort of grassroots democracy movement. And that was the case for some of the first legislation that eventually got turned into national legislation that led to a feed-in tariff that triggered the the growth of Germany's solar industry, which eventually led to it being, you know, essentially co-opted by China and subsidized further to make solar cheap the world over. But the critical pivot there was about almost ten-year period where German investment capital in in huge numbers poured into the renewable energy industries, particularly solar. It was not you know, grassroots communities building solar cells for themselves. It was big chunks of capital, publicly traded companies, all the holes of a capitalist market economy that absolutely made solar cheap the world over. And is to my mind, probably, you don't ever want to take one thing and say, oh, this is this was the things Then people say, well, you know, it's not, that's not a one size. But like, if you're going to look at one thing that happened in the last 20 years that was the single most in our ability now to seriously change, making solar cheap, as, as anything anyone's done. And that was done by a combination, yes, of some grassroots direct democracy stuff, some smart legislators at the federal level, and a huge amount of German capital airing in German industry. Uh, and then eventually engineering industry and state subsidy. So to look at that and say that it's all one or the other is ridiculous. It was a, it's that play of a, you know, free market economy and a, you know, a government that sees an opportunity does, you know, it's not perfect and it's nationalist or anything, but that, you know, they, whatever, you know, kind of alchemy of public and private and people pushing from below and top down measures that saw opportunity, whether it was political or economic, all of that played out in, in a particular direction. And even acting on it, this is not how they saw that it would go. This is just where you know, where a whole bunch of forces took it. I don't think you can say one of these. And you see the same thing we were talking about with the automotive sector. I mean, you know, continue, you know, trying to set itself up to be a player in the new electric vehicle industry through some direct government subsidy and, and government supports, as they always have in the automotive. Yes. But there are also market forces pushing the other way that made these automotive companies want to invest billions of dollars in completely retooling their lines for electric vehicles. There's no one or the other there. And I mean, take it back to Tesla is a great example. Tesla is a, you know, from some people's point of view, this great example of a, you know, silicon dream and venture capital and, you know, they, you know, playing out conventional markets. But it was also subsidized like crazy every step of the way. It still is. Uh, it, it uses enormous amounts of government money to make itself uh, into the company that it has, as do all automotive companies. I mean, there's not a, there's not a free automotive market in the world, I don't think. I mean, it's all you know, subsidized one way or another. And at some point along the way was, was given preferential to grow and so on and so forth. So, 
you already mentioned this is a, a multi-generational transition or adaptation. So we are we are going to face some changes. We are going to face some yeah. increase in warmer climate, for example. What does it look like? The first thing I, I would say that much different from today in the sense of you'll still have, you know, governments that are, you know, doing well to greater or lesser degrees. I think the the crisis side of the climate issue will only get worse for a while. You know, the calamity of climate change will be significant, regardless of anything we'd stopped tomorrow burning all fossil fuel. That would be the case. We'd be looking at rising sea level, more and more intense storms, more and more intense heat waves, uh, desertification, all like just all some of these forces are going to continue to un, un, unroll. There's there's things we can do and get better at. To some degree, there's going to be like there's never I guess this is like more footing thing. Part of the reason why there's no moment where you can say, ah, Hitler is, you know, capitulated in his bunker is because the climate's not gonna capitulate. There's it's gonna continue to feed back in ways we would prefer not for a long time. Uh, how intensely it does so though has a lot to do with what we do now. And I think what we're going to see is uh, things begin to move faster than even, you know, even I, and I'm on the optimistic side, even I think, uh, in ways that are big. But the trend to date has been that any attempt to sort of predict, oh, this is, you know, you know we're going to hit kind of a, I don't know, like solid state, but like a, uh, a kind of a kind of a smooth sailing in, in terms of renewable energy expansion, in terms of electrical adoption, in ter- and, and it'll kind of level off. It won't keep doing this astronomical growth thing that it's done for the last five, 10 years. But we've pred- been predicting that all along, and that hasn't been the case. And it just keeps kind of snowballing. And so I think we'll see a lot more of that. And I think um, a lot of big, huge things that we can't predict that are going to be disruptive the way, you know, when I started, my, my first beat in as a journalist was the technology beat in the late 90s, first wave of really, really serious internet adoption. And, you know, the, the first wave of the dot-com companies and all of that. And at that point, with many years before everything changed, people, including myself, weren't seeing how disruptive and how crazy smartphones were going to make the whole thing. We weren't talking about, you know, wireless stuff yet, uh, at least, and not, not in any, not in any you know, big way anyway. Um, and I think there's that level of potential disruption. And I, you know, there's a number of directions that could come from the ability to, you know, capture and sequester or otherwise repurpose CO2 in at big industrial scale, if and when that suddenly makes you know hits that steep part of the growth curve that would be enormously disruptive to a whole bunch of people's thoughts about how it's going to go does the you know rise of renewables and electrification you know digital technology to play you know this pretty massively disruptive role in how we pay for and distribute power become i mean this is a thing you're seeing for example in germany which is one of the leading jurisdictions where their market hasn't quite caught up with it yet, but they're now at the point where you've got parts of Germany, for like northern Germany, Schleswig uh, Holstein is the, the state, is 80-some percent really powered, mostly wind, and it feeds electricity from its grid in a big industrial scale to Hamburg and its surrounds, surroundings, which is a big industrial city, like has major you know, manufacturing facility, like this, this is not a, you know, uh, information economy city. Hamburg's got a, a lot of serious heavy industry around it. And they're now running grids for how a you know wind farm able to broker energy directly to certain kinds of industries uh, could rethink how they manufacture and take advantage of the fact that the wind is cheap when it's cheap and not 
one is on. And this is all early state, stuff like that, and think that's the fundamental reimagining of how power is distributed. And we don't get, but I, my suspicion is when it goes off, it will be pretty disruptive to what we think about how things are going to go. And so I, I, I'm going to clear picture here so much as to say, I think we've only begun to see how dramatic this change is going to be. And that is not to say that, you know, we're, we're entering some sort of unrecognizable future where we all wear and that kind of thing. It's more to say, I think, you know, try and predict something as big and chaotic as this moving into the mainstream. Thanks, Chris. Chris Turner, the author of How to Be a Climate Optimist, Blueprints for a Better World. Available from Random House Canada, wherever you get your books. That's it for this episode. Thanks to producer Sarah Simpson and Alina Simpson of Media Made Manageable for their help this week. Theme music and sound logo by John Sanfilippo of Titan Sound in Kingston, Ontario. Make sure to tell a friend about the podcast and send them over to the podcast page at northernlatitudes.ca. I'm Bill Alt. Find your way to Northern Latitudes.